Well, the, the truth can be both powerful and, depending on your perspective, a bit dangerous. And so what people believe to be true is, is very powerful. This is why propaganda exists. If you do not know the term propaganda, it can be defined as, as information, especially biased or misleading information that is intended to achieve some goal. So those who produce propaganda want to achieve some goal. Their effort is to distract people from the truth or convince people that something that is not true is really true, to create a, a new truth. And that's done in order to achieve some political goal, maybe some personal goal. Uh, so during the current war between Russia and Ukraine, the Ukrainian government and many other governments have accused the Russian government of engaging in propaganda. So Russia refuses to call the conflict in Ukraine a, a war. Uh, the Russian government has denied that their soldiers have killed civilians, despite uh, much evidence to the contrary. Uh, Russia has denied that they're the aggressor in the, the conflict. And they've even shut down uh, access to information from, from other countries within Russia uh, about the war. So they've tried to cut off the flow of information into their own country. Well, this is all in an effort to win support or to keep support for this conflict uh, among the Russian people, but even among uh, people from around the globe. So I recently read a, a news story about citizens of Lithuania, the country of Lithuania, who have started calling people in Russia, people they do not know. It's just like ordinary Lithuania citizens, like picking up the phone, I guess opening whatever the equivalent of the Russian phone book is, and calling people in Russia. And they do this to tell them the truth, or what they believe to be the truth, about the war. So these Lithuanian citizens are calling people in Russia, telling them about the war, and their hope is that if these ordinary Russian citizens know the truth, it will lead them to oppose the war. And if enough people oppose the war, perhaps that might bring it to an end. Well, these people, these Lithuanian citizens, recognize the power of truth. And it's the same reason Russia tries to limit information about the war coming into the country. They recognize the danger of truth. They recognize the power of truth. It could turn public opinion against the government. The truth is both powerful and, depending on your perspective, it is dangerous. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 57. In just a moment, we're going to pick up where Angela just left off reading about Jesus' crucifixion. We're going to read Matthew 27, 57 through 28:15. But these verses and what we're going to be considering this morning speak to the most important and most consequential truth in all of human history. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to consider the, the power of that truth this morning. We're also going to see that the, the power of that truth led many to see it as dangerous, to uh, oppose that truth, to dismiss it, to try to create propaganda, to distract from the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most consequential truth in human history. And so... As we go through these verses, I want you to be asking yourself, what, what will I do with the truth of the resurrection? What will I do with the truth of the resurrection? Now, before we read these verses from Matthew's Gospel, you should know that the events surrounding his resurrection and crucifixion come at the end of Jesus' public ministry. 
Uh, his public ministry where he was healing people and casting out demons, where he was teaching, well, that lasted roughly three years in Jesus' life. Uh, and he was demonstrating through his healing and through his teaching, he was demonstrating in word and deed that he truly was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, God himself. Now, during the course of his public ministry, many came to believe in Jesus, but many especially the Jewish religious leaders of the day, those generally known in the Bible by the term Pharisees, well, well, many came to oppose Jesus. They did not believe in Jesus. They sought to destroy him. Well, this opposition to Jesus culminated in the crucifixion that Angela just read about. And so now we're going to turn our attention to those events immediately following Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead. So look with me starting in Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people, He has been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. Now, friends, before we, we really go through this text, just take a moment to stop and marvel at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Don't just glance over these verses, the, the miracle that we see here. Marvel at the fact that an angel of the Lord descended from heaven with the appearance of lightning and rolled back the stone that was at Jesus' tomb. Marvel at the angel's words that he is not here, for he has risen just as he said. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus died. We, we just read about Jesus' crucifixion. But praise be to God that he rose again, just as he said. He appeared in the flesh. He is alive even now, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is essential to the Christian faith. It is amazing. So just take a moment. It's what we want to do each and every day. It's what we do especially today on Easter. We want to marvel at the truth of the resurrection. This amazing truth is what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And so I have just three points for you to consider for today's sermon. The first is the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. The second is the threat of the resurrection. The threat of the resurrection. Third is the response to the resurrection. The response to the resurrection. And the main idea is this, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is true, and the truth of the resurrection demands a response. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is true, and the truth of the resurrection demands a response. So first, the, the reality of the resurrection. And what I want you to see from this first point of the sermon is that Matthew is very careful to present the resurrection as a, as a historical reality. He's very careful to present it as something that actually happened. As I just said, the historical reality of the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote this. If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Friends, there is no forgiveness of sins without the resurrection. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. It is just a fraud if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true. So Matthew wants you to see the reality of the resurrection because the truth of the resurrection matters. So Matthew includes a wealth of historical details here in his gospel. And these are details that his original readers could have easily verified. This was recent history for them. These would have been events they were familiar with. They may have known people who were present as eyewitnesses of some of these events. So first, Matthew tells you in, in verses 57 through 61 that Joseph of Arimathea, not, jo- not Jesus' father, different Joseph, that he went to Pilate and requested that Jesus' body be released into his custody. So Joseph took Jesus down from the cross, buried him in his own tomb, something of a a cave that had been cut out of a a rocky cliff, and rolled a stone across the entrance. So at the time, this was a fairly common burial practice, particularly among the wealthy. D.A. Carson writes this in his commentary on Matthew, an expensive tomb, though Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man, an expensive tomb was sealed with a cut disc-shaped stone that rolled in a slot cut into the rock. The slot was on an incline, making the grave easy to seal, so it seems like just Joseph, perhaps, was even able to close the grave, making it easy to seal but difficult to open. Several men might be needed to roll the stone back up the incline. In other words, the disciples could not have easily snuck by these guards and just kind of like, you know, moved the stone pretty easy. It was going to be a gargantuan task to roll this stone back up the incline to get to Jesus' body. Another detail that Matthew includes we find in verses 62 through 65. That's the fact that the chief priest and the the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' tomb to be made more secure. 
they had heard Jesus' prediction of his resurrection. They decide we're going to put an end to any rumors. So they asked for Jesus' tomb to be made more secure. In response, Pilate told them to go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. Well, they did this by putting a, a wax seal on the tomb, something that would show if that, that stone had been disturbed, if the tomb had been opened. They stationed guards at the entrance of the tomb. And so they did make the tomb as secure as they knew how. But they were unable to stop the power and the plans of God who raised Jesus from the dead. They made it as secure as they knew how, but those guards became like dead men at the coming of the angel of the Lord. That seal could not stop the angel from rolling back the stone. They could not stop Jesus from coming forth. They made it as secure as they knew how, but they could not stop the power of God at work. I think I saw a, a statement from somebody who calls this verse where it says that they made the tomb as secure as they knew how. One of the most ironic verses or funny verses in the entire Bible. We have the power of men and the power of God put next to one another. Guess which one wins? Well, a detail that is perhaps surprising that Matthew includes is that the angel of the Lord first delivers his message to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. This other Mary is likely the one we see in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, which is the mother of James and Joseph. Jesus' first appearance after his resurrection, as we see in Matthew, is to these two women as well. In fact, if you look back at verse 61 of Matthew 27, they are witnesses to Jesus' burial as well. Well, at the time, the, the, the Jewish people did not put a whole lot of value on the testimony of women. It was often not accepted as, a, as, a, as an eyewitness testimony in court. It wasn't likely to be believed. And so this is surprising that the angel of the Lord would first come to these two women, that Jesus would first appear to these two women. If Jesus' followers simply made up the story of Jesus' resurrection, uh, this would not be what they wrote. They would not include this detail that Jesus' first appearance was to these two women. It would not be believable. But the fact that Matthew reports that these two Marys were eyewitnesses to his burial and eyewitnesses to the angel and eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection is evidence that what Matthew writes here is true. This is just, he writes it because it's what happened. This is actually what happened. Well, friends, in the, the first point of the sermon, what I most want you to see is I think it's good to see that Matthew includes these historical details here. But what I most want you to see is that there was no dispute that the tomb was empty. There was no dispute that Jesus' body was gone. When the guards come and report to the, the Pharisees that, uh, about what has happened, the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, do not tell the guards, well, just go back to the tomb and bring us the body of Jesus. That's going to put an end to, to all these rumors. If they could have shown Jesus' body, it would have been very easy to stop the, the story of the resurrection that began to spread. But they could not. The tomb was empty. Instead, the chief priests and the Pharisees bribed the soldiers to say his disciples came during the night and, and stole him while we were sleeping. Well, they had to turn to, they had to, turn to propaganda. There was no dispute that the tomb was empty, these chief priests and the Pharisees turned to propaganda. But friends, at the end of the day, everyone has to wrestle with the reality of the empty tomb. At the end of the day, everyone has to wrestle with the reality of the empty tomb. 
Uh, over their centuries, there's been a, a number of theories put forward as about why the tomb was empty for, from people who did not believe in, in Jesus, did not believe the truth of the resurrection. Uh, none of these stories, aside from the resurrection, are convincing. But my point this morning is not to go through these things and tell you why you should not believe them. My point is simply to say this, that these theories about what happened to Jesus' body, they, they all have one thing in common. They all have one thing that they are seeking to explain. They are all wrestling with one fact. And that is the fact that the tomb was empty. At the end of the day, everyone has to deal with the reality of the empty tomb. Whether or not they believe in Jesus, everyone has to deal with the reality of the empty tomb. You have to answer the question, why was the tomb empty? Do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And if I do... If I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for me? A Christian, one of the, the great joys and comforts of faith in Jesus Christ is that you have truth on your side. One writer put it this way, when we come to Jesus, when we enter into a relationship with the truth, this is firm ground. This is what people are thirsting for. What a joy the discovery of such truth is. What a joy to feast on such truth daily as we read the scriptures. Another professor said this, Christianity satisfies the intellect because it is true. And the truth is the only everlasting satisfaction. Friends, I don't know where you might be looking for satisfaction this morning, where you're hoping to find satisfaction and joy and, and peace, but you will only find it in the truth of the empty tomb and the truth of the resurrection. And that is to say that you're only going to find it in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, the truth of the resurrection is a powerful truth. It is the most consequential truth in the entire world. And friends, truth matters. What is true matters. The, the Pharisees understood that this truth was powerful and that the truth matters. But unfortunately, they considered the reality of, of Jesus' resurrection to be dangerous. And so they sought to suppress the truth. And that takes us to the, the second point of the sermon, which is the threat of the resurrection. The threat of the resurrection. So the chief priests, the, the Pharisees, as we just read about, the religious leaders of the day, they saw the resurrection of Jesus as a threat. Just as they had seen Jesus' ministry, Jesus himself throughout his ministry as a, a threat. This is abundantly clear in verses 62 and 65 of Matthew 27. The Pharisees were afraid the disciples were going to come and, and steal Jesus' body, that they were going to start a rumor that Jesus had rose from the dead. And they claimed in verse 64 that the last deception will be worse than the first. In their view, Jesus' first deception was his claim to be the Messiah. His claims to be the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Uh, during his, his earthly ministry, the, the religious leaders are continually, uh, continually accuse Jesus of blasphemy. More than once, they, they accused Jesus of blasphemy. They understood the claims that he was making the power that he was demonstrating, but they opposed him. They did not have faith, but instead believed Jesus to be deceiving people. And so their fear was that this deception would only get worse if people believed he had risen from the dead. 
Well, on this point, they were right. I mean, sort of. They were wrong that it was a deception that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus truly did rise from the dead. I mean, we just, we just looked at that point. But they were right about the power of people believing that Jesus rose. They were right about the power of the resurrection. Friends, if people did not believe Jesus has been raised from the dead, there would not be millions of churches throughout the world. There would not be millions upon millions of Christians gathered in churches this day and many other Sundays throughout the year to worship the risen Savior. People from every tribe and tongue and nation would not be gathered to worship Jesus this Easter if he had not been raised. It is a powerful truth. As we saw in in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, when Jesus did rise from the dead, the, the Pharisees, instead of believing, instead of placing their faith in Jesus, they concoct a, they concoct a story. They engaged in propaganda. They sought to suppress the truth. The question is why? Why was the resurrection so threatening to these Pharisees and to these religious leaders of the day? Friends, let me just ask you a question. How many of you have lied at some point in time to protect yourself? How many of you have lied at some point in your life because you, did, you feared the truth about something you had done getting out? How many examples can we find about powerful people or, or companies lying for their own personal benefit? For years, the the major tobacco companies of the world, or at least the the major tobacco companies of the United States, lied to people about the health risks of smoking. Even after they knew about the health risks of smoking, of of regular smoking, they did their best to suppress the truth and often misled people so that people would continue to buy their cigarettes, that people would continue to buy their tobacco products, so people would continue to give them their hard-earned money. Friends, the bottom line was that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a threat to the Pharisees' position and power. In the, in the Gospel of John, in John's Gospel, uh, we read about Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus, who's been in the, in the grave for four days, and in something of a precursor to his own resurrection, Jesus showed his power over death in a very clear and visible way in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But the response of the Pharisees to this miracle that John records is revealing. After hearing about Jesus' raising of Lazarus, this is, what they, this is how they respond. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, And we're saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing so many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They recognize the the power of Jesus at work. They recognize the signs that he was performing. And they were afraid that people were going to believe in him. Because they were afraid of losing their position and their power to Jesus. The truth of his teaching... The truth of his signs and wonders and the truth of his resurrection were threats to them. And so they responded accordingly. Friends, that brings us to the the last point of the sermon and where I want to spend the majority of our time, and that is the response to the resurrection. The response to the resurrection. Friends, if we have seen the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a 
is a powerful truth. It's also a dividing line. It is a divisive truth. If you believe in the resurrection from, of Jesus from the dead, if you believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead, the only logical response, the only thing that makes any sense to do is reorient your life around that truth. It changes everything. Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, if you tell me, if you were to come up after church and, and tell me, oh, I believe in the resurrection, but that has not changed your life in any way. Your life has not changed as a result of you saying that you believe in that truth. I would suggest that you do not actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, no matter what you say. Friends, if you believe in the resurrection, you have to believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. That Jesus is God himself who came to earth. That he lived the perfect life that you could not live. That he died a sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross in your place. The resurrection is the assurance that these things are true. The resurrection is the assurance of these things. Friends, the truth of the resurrection is powerful. Depending on your perspective, it is dangerous. It is also divisive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a dividing line. Which side of that line are you going to stand on? To believe in the resurrection is to believe that there is a God in heaven who created you. A God in heaven who has authority over you. A God with the power to raise from the dead and to give new life. So as we think about the response to Jesus' resurrection that we see in these verses, I want to ask you that question that I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. What will you do with the truth of the resurrection? What will you do with the truth of the resurrection? What is your response? I want to go back first to that response of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the guards. As we saw, their response was to suppress the truth. The guards were witnesses to exactly what happened. They saw the angel of the Lord. It's why they fell down as dead men. They felt the earthquake. They saw the empty tomb and the stone rolled back. They were witnesses to exactly what happened. They told the chief priests and the Pharisees this same story, exactly what they had seen and heard, this miraculous sight. But they all conspired to suppress the truth because they were afraid and wanted to protect themselves. The guards were happy just to escape trouble. They probably feared that they were going to be put to death for, for allowing Jesus' body to be gone, for allowing the tomb to be open. So they happily took the money and ran and, and, and went with this story of propaganda that the chief priests had fed them. The chief priests and Pharisees were fearful of losing their position and power, so they, they created a story of propaganda. They just suppressed the truth. They denied it. They knew it, but they denied it. Friends, what I want you to understand is that they suppressed the truth and they denied the truth because their hearts were hardened towards Jesus. Their suppression of the truth was the response of their hearts that were hardened towards Jesus. I mean, we see this when the, the Pharisees uh, approach Pilate before anything has actually happened and, and say, look, we think this might happen, that the disciples are going to steal the body that they're going to spread a rumor that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Their minds were already made up. They had already decided that any claim of Jesus rising from the dead was false. 
they had already decided that anything that was going to be said was simply going to be a deception by Jesus' disciples. They had long ago hardened their hearts towards Jesus. Friends, this is a picture of who you are in your sin. This is a picture of what Jesus, or what, sorry, not what Jesus does, but what people do in their sinful natures. We are opposed to God. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. What is Paul saying in those verses? He's saying that the creation, just step outside looking at the mountains and the sea and the few trees of Fujera. That creation reveals that there is a creator. It is not a secret. It is not a secret that there is a God who has made the world and that there is a God who has made each and every one of you. Everyone knows it. But in our sin, we deny the truth. You suppress the truth. Your sinful nature is opposed to God. You do not want to admit the truth that there is a God who made you and there is a God to whom you are accountable. To admit that truth means that you have to give up your sin and submit to God. So in our sin nature, we want to ignore that reality. We want to suppress the truth. It is a threat to us. I mean, one clear example of this is is just to take the transgender movement that has become such a big thing in so many parts of the world. Uh, Now, I I do think, even as I say that, there are people who truly struggle and feel as if they are a woman trapped in a man's body or a a man trapped in a woman's body. I think there are people who probably really struggle with that reality. But the world at large, many societies at large, the society where I come from in the United States at large, celebrates this thing. They, They celebrate this reality. They say that we cannot know what a man is and we cannot know what a woman is. That what we have known for thousands of years, what we have known since the beginning of creation, cannot be known. What a man is and what a woman is. Well, friends, everyone knows. They all know. We know what a man is. We know what a woman is. But much of the world is in a race to deny the obvious. They are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Yet, as much as we, we might be tempted to, to ridicule that, and we certainly don't want to ridicule those who are, are struggling uh, with these feelings of gender dysphoria, just know that, it, that as much as you might want to, to laugh, that people could say that they don't know what a man is or a woman is. It, is. it is no different or no more ridiculous than the denial that there is a God who has made you and that there is a God who is worthy of your worship. The evidence is overwhelming. And so, friends, let me just ask you, what tempts you to deny or suppress the truth? If you're here and, and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're tempted to deny the truth about your Creator. 
Perhaps you're tempted to deny the, the truth that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical reality, something that really happened. But if you are a Christian, maybe it's not that truth that you're tempted to suppress. But perhaps there is some command of scripture that you're tempted to ignore. A teaching of the Bible that you may want to explain away, deny, ignore. The Pharisees were afraid to, to lose their position. Well, the tobacco companies for years and years suppressed the truth about the realities of the health risks of smoking because they did not want to lose their profits. What might you be afraid to lose? What might you be afraid to lose? Is there some sinful pleasure that you do not want to give up? Some sin that you secretly enjoy indulging in and, and you love so much that you are not willing to part with it? And perhaps it's your own reputation. Maybe it's a sin that you are too afraid to, to admit. You, a, a sin that you do not want to, to confess. Maybe you're simply afraid of handing over the authority of your life to another. You're afraid that if you, if you really put your faith in this truth that Jesus rose from the dead, that you must then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. But friends, maybe you want to be in control. Maybe you don't like the idea of handing over the authority of your life to another. But friends, whatever that thing is that you are afraid to lose... Whatever that thing is that you are afraid to lose is the thing that you love and trust more than God. It is the thing that you have elevated over God. It is the thing that you have oriented your life around instead of God. And so let me direct your attention to a second response to Jesus that we see in these verses. And that's the response of the two women, the two Marys. And there was response in, in contrast to that of the Pharisees as one, as, as one of joy and worship. Theirs was the response of faith. They had fear. They were not absent of fear. But they did not have the sheer terror of the soldiers. They had a, a holy fear, a holy awe of God, a trembling at his might and his power. But a sure and steady trust in his goodness and his love. So when Jesus appeared to them as they were running back to tell the disciples, what did they do? Well, we see in verse 9 that when Jesus appeared, they came, took a hold of his feet, and worshipped him. They believed, and so they worshipped. Brothers and sisters, I think you should note the eagerness of these women to go and tell what they had seen and what they had been told. They did not suppress the truth. They did not deny the truth. They did not seek to, to hide the truth. They went and proclaimed the truth. Brothers and sisters, the reality is if you truly believe Jesus is risen from the dead, if you believe that he has given you new life, if you believe that he is who he says he is, you should have a desire to go and tell others, to proclaim the glories of the risen Savior who has brought you from death to life. I don't think it's an accident that immediately following these verses, the very conclusion of Matthew's gospel that we did not read, is where we have Jesus' great commission. When he commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Brothers and sisters, to truly know and believe the truth of the gospel is to have a desire to share it. Friends, what made the difference for these two women? Why did they react the way they did? Why did they worship? Why did they react in such a, a different way than the, than the Pharisees and the chief priests? Well, at one level, 
we would certainly say it's because God had been at work in their hearts. He had softened their hearts to receive the good news of the gospel. He had softened their hearts to, to believe. But on another level, it was because of their humility. It was their desire to know the truth, and it was their willingness to follow the truth. Well, one pastor had this to say about his own efforts to share the gospel. And this to say about when, when he would try to share the gospel with others. He says this, when I am sharing Christ with someone, I often will ask, if you come to see these things are true, are you willing to change your life in response? If you come to see these things are true, are you willing to change your life in response? Because a willingness to follow the truth is a prerequisite to knowing the truth. Before the head will understand truth, the heart must be surrendered to follow truth. But friends, what made the difference was that the hearts of these two women were surrendered to Jesus. They had a willingness to follow. These two women followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. As we saw in Matthew, they were there for his crucifixion. They were there to watch his burial. They went on sunrise at the first Easter to, to go and, and be at the tomb. Friends, these women loved Jesus and they followed Jesus. They wanted to be near him at his crucifixion. They wanted to be near his body as he was buried. They wanted to be near the tomb where he lay and, and continue to minister to Jesus even after his death. Friends, they received the news of the resurrection with great joy because they received Jesus with great joy. They demonstrated over and over again their willingness to, to follow, their willingness to, to submit to him. Friends, the difference was their hearts. In John 8, 32, Jesus said this to some who had come to believe in him. Jesus said this to, to some of those who had come to believe in him. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, the, the resurrection from, of Jesus from the dead is the validation and assurance that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself, the only Savior of the world. The God who took on flesh and came to live among us. It is the validation and assurance that his bloody death on the cross as a substitute for sinners really did purchase forgiveness for any guilty sinner who would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the validation and assurance that sin and death have been defeated and that we can both have new life and eternal life in Jesus Christ. It is the assurance that sin no longer has dominion over you, that you are no longer slaves to sin, and that this world is not all that there is. It is the validation and assurance that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is the validation and assurance that one day all things will be made new. We just said that this world is not all that there is, but that one day all things will be transformed and all things will be made new. Friends, as Jesus said in John 8, 32, the truth, believing the truth of Jesus' resurrection, believing the truth that he died on the cross to purchase forgiveness for all those who would repent and believe, that truth will set you free. It sets you free from trying to find satisfaction and joy in the things of this world, the things of this world that cannot and will never satisfy. It sets you free from trying to be master of your own fate and captain of your own soul. It sets you free from the effort of trying to earn your way to God, of trying to do enough good to earn God's good pleasure, of working and working and hoping and hoping that what you do will be enough. 
Friends, we are in the middle of a month in which many of our friends and neighbors are weighed down with the burden of trying to please God by what they do, by trying to earn their righteousness. This is an impossible task. Uh, The truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of his crucifixion and resurrection sets you free. It frees you from that burden. And friends, most importantly, the truth of the resurrection sets you free from your burden of sin by setting you free from your bondage to sin. The truth of the resurrection sets you free from the burden of sin because it sets you free from your bondage to sin. And so friends, let me ask you, what is your own heart's response to Jesus today? What will you do with the truth of the resurrection? Will you suppress it, deny it? Will you hear it and say, yeah, I believe in that, but but go out of these doors later this afternoon, later this morning, and nothing in your life will change as a result. Perhaps you'll show back up next Easter. You'll hear the same thing over and over again and nod your head that you agree, but nothing in your life will change. Well, friends, that's really an effort just to deny or suppress the truth. You live as if it is not true. Friends, the question is, are you willing to believe the truth? Are you willing to follow the truth? Are you willing to reorient your life around the truth of the resurrection? Friends, if you are to be part of the people of God, they're marked as being people who have reoriented their life around the truth that Jesus came and died and that Jesus rose again, that he is a risen and reigning Savior to whom we are accountable and we must submit to him and follow him. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Let's pray.